today on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. All right, let's bring in Peter Grave, professor of political science with McMaster University. Lots to talk about uh, political-wise, and uh, Peter is with us now. Peter, thank you for the time. I hope you're doing well. I am, thanks. Uh, lots of uh, self-discovery for Canadians over the last several weeks. Uh, the discovery of uh, the remains underneath the Kamloops Residential School. Uh, others need to be investigated, including Brandon. Uh, also, the tragic death of the Muslim family in in London uh, when uh, a person literally mows them down with his truck and such. Uh, and then, of course, the discussion of Islamoph- Islamophobia again co- uh, comes up. A, a, a pretty tough time for uh canadians and and sort of a, a bit of um of, of coming to terms with our past as we exit a global pandemic what, what are your thoughts as where canada finds itself right now uh well you plain to paint a pretty bleak picture i think you're right that uh you know these discoveries of the residential schools uh, i mean uh, you know any self-respecting nation uh would be uh, you know, mourning, uh, you know, such a number of deaths, even if uh, many of them were from long ago. Um, so I mean, it's not surprising that that is certainly weighing heavily on Canadians at the moment. Although at the same time, I think the other side of it is the emerging from the pandemic and the relative success with the vaccination spurring this hope. I mean, we'll see whether it lasts, but that somehow we may uh, be able to get back out into public in a way we haven't been at least since last summer and probably more to the point since about 18 months ago. Uh, we heard uh, the Premier this morning announce that uh, Ontario will provide uh, $10 million towards the uh, investigation of residential schools uh, in this province over uh, the next three years. It seems that this has always been a debate over jurisdiction. There's a court case uh, with the feds in court right now regarding jurisdiction. Are you surprised that the provinces are weighing in on this now? I'm not too surprised. I mean, I think uh, ultimately... You know, $10 million is a lot of money to us, uh, but for, you know, politicians, that's the price of printing up business cards. Um, but it could be used to actually do something that's important in terms of, you know, our understanding uh, of what's happened uh, and to bring some aspect of, well, maybe closure isn't the right word, but, you know, to, to be able to face, you know, the facts. We have this sort of nagging question. I mean, uh, you know, do we find these at every residential school? So, you know, to to cast light on that is probably pretty healthy uh, for a political community and can be done at not a great deal of cost. So I I think that's why we're seeing the premiers moving forward, you know, having the capacity to do that. In many ways, at least, I think the federal government looking a bit slow. I mean, they talked about doing this in the past, but it always found that there was, you know, better uses for the money. And who knows, maybe, uh, you know, one could justify that. But, I mean, given, you know, the discovery in Kamloops, I mean, it's clear that this is something... That needs to be done. Uh, I think it's being asked for by many uh, Indigenous communities, and I think the broader Canadian population also, I think, wants a clearer accounting of this. Is this a tipping point for Canada on this issue? Uh, I don't think so. I don't think so. Mm. I mean, I don't think there really is a a tipping point. I mean, we've been uh, walking, I think, you know, now for a couple of decades, and, you know, with each step where we think we're, you know, really got a sense of, uh, the nature of of the Canadian political community, then we take another step and say, no, actually, there's a lot more we have to think about. I mean, even the language of genocide. I, I remember when the Truth and Reconciliation Report came out and uh, you had me on your show, and, you know, well, this was a kind of a new term to talk about cultural genocide, and, you know, did it apply? Well, I think, 
you know, now six or seven years later, we, we begin to think a bit more, well, you know, if, if there was a genocide, uh, you know, and there's many things that look like that, well, what does that really mean about our political community and the institutions that we venerate? How do we have to think about them differently? And, I, and that's, I mean, that's a massive undertaking for individuals, but also collectivity to, uh, collectivity to really relearn uh, things that we thought we knew. And so, yeah, is this a tipping point? I don't think so. I think it's another point, though, where we come face to face with a past that we didn't think existed, and now we have to reevaluate. And so, I think we will be in a, a moment of, you know, asking these questions for the next year or so. And you know, presumably down the road, there will be another moment like this where, again, we're called upon to to say, well, maybe we didn't understand things as well as we thought we did. You think about it, though, Peter, and, you know, I mean, the truth and reconciliation aspect and in, in Canada's relationship with its Indigenous community is one thing. On the other hand, there's just the sheer legalities of this. There's there's human beings that are that are buried where we don't have record, we don't know their ID, we don't know cause of death. Um, this is going to be a very long, painful process, isn't it? I think so. And, I mean, I think it's, again, you know, on the one hand, there is a desire to move quickly on it, but I think... Uh, again, the the participation of communities whose children are are you know are, are being found there is really important to make sure that it's done in a way that responds to what they want to know and how they think about the appropriate manner is of of kind of recognizing and marking uh, marking this and you know what the appropriate way is for a community to deal with you know the discovery of many of its you know children uh, in unmarked graves and how how it wants to respond to it so. And certainly, I think there's a there's a need to move forward, but uh, you know, not to push it too fast. Because I suspect within those communities themselves, there's a lot of disagreement about how do you, I mean, how do you struggle with uh, with learning things that you probably already knew, uh, but now you know having to confront them too in a, in a much more straightforward manner. Uh, also, the tragedy which happened in London and and this family uh, literally being mowed down, murdered. Uh, one child, nine year old, nine years old, survives. The other four family members, uh, obviously gone. Again, the outpouring of 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 shock, of of uh, disgust, all of that comes to mind, and, and then. Uh, fast forward to a, a vigil that was that was held there, and politicians of every stripe uh, show up and 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 use the term terrorism. And I think why this is standing out is whether it was the van attack uh, uh, in Toronto or what have you. That term hasn't been used before, or people avoided using that term. Now it seems uh, that the prime minister and all politicians are eager. Uh, to jump on that term. What's different here? Yeah, I mean, I think we might go back to last year and uh, the Black Lives Matter protests in the United States. And, you know, then they were taken up here. I think our way of thinking and talking here as well is changing pretty quickly. Um, and so, yeah, the, the, the necessity to, you know, think about these as acts of terror rather than simply the acts of you know, of lone individuals motivated for whatever reason or, you know, related to some sort of, you know, trauma in their own lives. I mean, I think, uh, you know, there has been a push to to change the frame in which we talk about these things so that we think about these as crimes perpetrated, not just against, you know, the people who died, but, you know, as part of a, a project of trying to, you know, uh, scare people or terrorize people or use fear in a manner, uh, you know, to change our society and to think about it in those terms rather than, 
simply, uh, you know, the acts of, you know, particularly crazed individuals. So, I mean, I, I think in a way our discussion has changed and maybe part of it that we get out of, you know, what happened in the United States is to not just think about it in terms of the individuals, but also what's it doing, uh, right, even to people who weren't, you know, particularly targeted, but how does it affect their feelings of security or ability to participate fully in Canadian society when they see things like that, when they maybe see themselves and the people who are mowed down and, you know, begin to say, well, maybe I can't walk uh, in the street, or maybe, you know, if I have success, I make myself into a target. Um, So I think part of it is the ability now that we want to see these things, not just as individual acts, but as something uh, that affects uh, society much more broadly and, you know, has an impact on the ability of people to participate fully in Canadian society. Should we separate international tourism from a domestic uh, terrorism charge? I mean, a lot in regard to terrorism is linked to other uh, outside ideology or organizations or such. We're still unaware of what the situation is with this case. Um, we, we just don't know any information at this point, although that it is certainly a hate crime and uh, the suspect has been charged uh, with terrorism. But should, should there be another definition for that in a domestic situation? Well, I mean, maybe your terms domestic and international. I mean, I think in the Canadian case, uh, you know, with the real exception, I guess, of the uh, FLQ moment in the 1960s. Someone brought that up yesterday and said, for example, we didn't call that terrorism. Yeah, I guess maybe not at the time, although, in, you know, in my lifetime, I think we've tended to, you know, treat the FLQ as a terrorist organization, or at least yeah. use those terms with respect to it. Um, you know, but generally, with that exception, yeah, Canadians have lulled themselves into the idea that when these acts happen in Canada, somehow it's people, you know, fighting uh, some kind of war from somewhere else. And so it's, you know, the example, uh, you know, of, say, the Turkish embassy being, uh, you know, being attacked and so on back in the 1980s. But, you know, ultimately, you know, there's, there's plenty of use of terror, I think, within Canada, and we'll, we'll I think, have increasing, you know, number of acts such as these. So, you know, I don't think there's a problem in using the term. Um, I think we can get hung up on the term, uh, you know, rather than sort of speaking plainly about, well, what, you know, what were these people trying to accomplish, uh, you know, and, and, and think about it in those ways. Because obviously, uh, there's obviously a politics to calling certain things terrorism or not terrorism. But, uh, you know, again, I think we can understand acts you know, such as these, which seem to be not really about targeting the individuals, but more about targeting certain categories of people and presumably, you know, trying to make them feel unwelcome or targeted within Canadian society that we can understand as, as an act of, of terror. So is is it significant that the that leaders have used this term uh, now? Is this now sort of a reckoning that, yeah, that's, that's what it is and that's what we have here? Well, I mean, often I think politicians are a bit of a guidepost of where, you know, the average Canadian is at. Uh, you know, for the longest time, I think there was a, a difficulty in saying that, you know, uh, uh, in a situation like this, it was terror. I mean, there there's ways in which the term terrorism, uh, you know, and the term terrorist has been placed on certain people and not on others. And so the idea, and I mean, I think we saw this in the case of the United States when you had the bombing of the Oklahoma City building, you know, could a uh, could a white guy be a terrorist? I mean, it seemed outside of the way that that term had been uh, defined in popular usage. But I think, you know, in Canada in 2021, I think people can now see and name those things as an act of terror rather than trying to explain it as, you know, a troubled individual uh, or, you know, some other, you know, some other characteristic. Again, I mean, we'll see what comes out of 
you know, the trial and uh, the, the investigation of this. But, you know, the, the idea that, you know, such categories of people are capable of being terrorists in, in Canada, I think, is reflected in this. And, you know, politicians feel that they can say that without uh, getting a degree of popular blowback. Uh, we're starting, uh, obviously, hearing a lot of talk of the term Islamophobia again. Uh, two conservative party members speaking out for not speaking up earlier about anti-Muslim bias. How do Canadians deal with this with Quebec and Bill 21, which, of course, uh, looks to ban all religious uh, face coverings? We're certainly seeing a couple of incidents in the news in the last couple of days about people who have been harassed for wearing uh, their religious symbols and such. So uh, how do you... How do you how do you how do you square this circle when when we have Bill Twenty One in Quebec? Well, I mean, I think uh, you know perhaps the first point is that probably most of these incidents in places like you know there was a stabbing in, in what was it, Mississauga a couple of years ago, and now this probably had very little to do with Bill Twenty One in Quebec. Mm. So you know, a bit like you know, there's a discovery of the remains, and and the prime minister's first uh, instinct seems to be to blame the Catholic Church and go after the Pope. You know, it seems that you know here we are in southern Ontario, and our first reaction is a somewhat implausible claim that the solution is to criticize a Quebec government law. Uh, you know, when presumably the you know the drivers uh, you know that push uh, people uh, you know in a case such like this to act are, are more likely. Well, things found, you know, in social media, our, our popular discussion here in southern Ontario and so on. So, uh, it, to me, it's kind of avoiding uh, dealing with the hard issues to go... Is, and, it a distra- uh, is it a distraction? Like, well, forget about me, look at them, look what they're doing. Yeah, I mean, I think there's plenty to criticize in Bill 21, but I think it's also a way of kind of making, you know, uh, us in English Canada blameless for these things, by making finding a pretty uh, implausible... A straw person. And, you know, it has the impact, obviously, within Quebec, where Bill 21 uh, is a pretty popular law, but has its own uh, internal opposition. Uh, you know, but as soon as uh, the rest of Canada begins to say, look, you know, uh, those terrible Quebecers, and they're so Islamophobic, uh, you know, the, it really rallies most Quebecers around, you know, to say, really, what are you talking about? Uh, if this happened in Ontario. I don't think you should be looking at us. And in many ways, it then strengthens the people who support Bill 21 because they can wrap it into a kind of Quebec nationalism. Uh, look at the rest of Canada scapegoating Quebec again. So, you know, again, there's plenty to criticize there, but I suspect uh, we might be, uh, we, we might do better both in terms of, you know, encouraging people who, you know, oppose Bill 21 in Quebec, but also in terms of dealing with, the, you know, the causes of situations such as this. To, to think a bit more about how is it that, you know, young kids in, uh, young people in Mississauga and the GTA uh, are being radicalized in a way to go and do something like taking a car and, uh, you know, deliberately mowing down a family. Um, you know, where does that come from? Uh, now, obviously, a lot of that's going to be particular to a specific case, but, you know, there's obviously things that are happening uh, in our media and our culture that uh, encourage or allow that to happen, and so let's let's think and talk about that, uh, or let's think and talk about how our citizens in places like Mississauga, who now are saying, "Well, we don't feel safe. Can we really go on our uh, our daily walk?" Well, how can we repair our community in terms of uh, enabling those people again to feel safe and part of our community? So, yeah, I think I think there's plenty to do around. Uh, our political leaders probably could have been a bit braver on Bill 21. Uh, ultimately, you know, that's going through the courts, and so there's kind of legal avenues around that. 
but in, in many ways, I think it's a distraction from really asking, well, it's here in the GTA. <laughs> how, how do we do that? And, you know, again, I suspect, uh, you know, most of the people in our community who uh, have issues with, uh, with Islam um, are not looking at Bill 21. Uh, I suspect they have their own kind of global culture they can pull from. Uh, there's no shortage of stuff out there, you know, particularly out of Europe, uh, really developing this idea that somehow Islam is incompatible with uh, Western liberal democracy. And, you know, they're drawing on all that material probably a lot more than from a reading of Bill 21. So how, what is the rest of Canada to take from this then? What is the rest of Canada to take from uh, Quebec's reaction to it? Do we, do you just give them a pass? Do you, do you question why they're doing what they're doing? How do Canadians process that? Well, I mean, I guess the first thing they have to do is kind of think about what the relationship is. I mean, it's a bit like if I have uh, an uncle I don't like and I'm having a disagreement with him, you know, and then someone comes and criticizes our family, well, suddenly he's my best uncle. <laughs> there's a way in which, you know, there's that kind of reaction. And so, uh, you know, a reaction out of the rest of Canada, look at terrible Quebec and Bill 21, you know, particularly when it's in reaction to something that happened in Ontario, uh, is only going to strengthen the kind of the reaction. But let's be honest, Peter, these issues have, have also happened in Quebec and, and in, in some cases more extensive. So it's not yeah. like it's, it's, you know, Ontario blaming Quebec for its problem. Uh, well, I mean, I think Quebec has its own problem, but, uh, you know, at the moment it seems to be Ontario not really wanting to look in, inwards and kind of ask mm-hmm. the question about mm-hmm. why it's happening here. So, yeah, I mean, what's, what's the, the answer? I think the answer probably is more to, you know, follow the idea of saying, you know, historically we've said this, this isn't Canada, this is something, you know, something that's come from elsewhere and is, is in a way poisoning Canada, this kind of hatred but it's not the kind of Canadian way. I mean, I think the discussion this time is a bit more to say, well, actually, no, there's probably a lot more, you know, within Canada than, than we want to admit, that we actually have to think about how we think and talk about who's a Canadian, who isn't a Canadian, what is a Canadian, and, and confront that. And, yeah, I mean, I, I think that's an important piece of the puzzle. If we just turn and say, ultimately, look at Bill 21, and look, there was a Quebec law shooting, in a way, it's also coming back to saying, well, this is in Canada. Somehow it's Quebec that's, you know, caused <laughs> these problems. Uh, again, you know, I mean, there's plenty to criticize and to engage in there, but uh, I think this kind of knee-jerk reaction, on the one hand, doesn't serve us in terms of figuring out, well, what are the issues in our own community? And it actually doesn't serve the the process of moving things forward in Quebec, because it actually undercuts the people in Quebec who are opposed to Bill 21, because, again, again the, the sort of nationalist reaction kind of forces them into line and say, well, yeah, that, that's my favorite uncle. Peter Grave with us, professor of political science, McMaster University. Peter, as always, thank you so much for the time. Be well. And you too. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. All right, time to uh, go all over the place and talk some politics and squeeze in as much as we can with Michael Tobe. Troy Media syndicated columnist, contributor to the Washington Times, former speechwriter for Stephen Harper, and is with us now. Michael, thank you for the time. I hope you're doing well. I am, Scott. Hope you are too. Uh, let's start with, uh, and we do have a lot to hit on here, uh, uh, the Ontario uh, uh, Provincial Conservatives announcing this morning uh, that uh, in, in a news conference with Doug Ford that uh, they will be contributing $10 million into the investigation of Ontario residential schools, this in light of what happened, obviously, in Kamloops and the discovery of the remains of 215 students below uh, a, a former residential school site. There's always been uh, discussion, debate, and some say just punishment 
hunting this down the the field uh, by arguing over jurisdiction. There's a jurisdictional case between the courts and the and the federal government right now on who's responsible for what. Are you surprised to see uh, the province stepping up here, Michael? No, I, I mean I don't think this is actually going to be a very of all the topics. I don't think this will be a profound uh, conversation because I think that most Ontarians will see this as being logical based on what happened in Kamloops, BC. They want to ensure that obviously everything is sort of more up to date and finally and correctly up to date when it comes to residential schools now in this province, that being Ontario. Um, I mean, again, you can you can talk about the amount of money, which I guess some people will either be in favor of, of challenge, say it's too much, too little. But overall, I think that the thought behind it is very logical. And I would not be surprised if other provincial governments do the same thing, albeit with differing amount of money put towards examining this issue. Uh, also, uh, it's been a difficult week for Canadians when you think of the residential schools uh, story out of Kamloops, uh, the, the tragic story in London of a Muslim family getting uh, mowed over by a, a person in a pickup truck, only the nine-year-old boy surviving, the other four members uh, obviously killed of that family. Yeah. Uh, lots of use of the term Islamophobia and debating whether it should be used or not, also, or when it should be used, rather. Also, the use of uh, the term uh, terrorism or a terrorist attack mm-hmm. uh, in this in this uh, horrific uh, murder. Uh, we saw at the vigil uh, many political leaders come out and use that term, yet it wasn't that long. And I think the reason people are making so much of this now is because that's not been the case in the past. With the van right. attack, for example, in, in uh, Toronto, there was no chatter of that. H- have we had a... Uh, a, a coming of terms here. What, what, what's? Why are we all of a sudden using this term now? And is is that positive? Is that finally what should be done? Well, using terrorism was a poor choice of words by Prime Minister Justin Trudeau, who was the one who truly introduced it, because at the time we didn't even know if it was actually related to terrorism. Unfortunately, we now use this word very willy-nilly, where we associate it with almost everything. And I think, based on some of the evidence that's now coming out, about the perpetrator and what he may or may not have been facing in life, it probably would have been best to discuss something like terrorism later if it was associated with it. So I think for a coming to terms, that was actually a bad move by Trudeau and anybody else who used it at the time. With Islamophobia, while you would prefer that people did not obviously use a term like that very widely, I think that in today's society, it's something that people are at least, if nothing else, willing to talk about to consider and to determine either what their point of view is on the matter or what society's point of view is on the matter. So, again, you would hope that it wouldn't dominate the conversation because the loss of life of this poor family is the most important thing, and bringing this perpetrator to proper justice is also equally important. But unfortunately, whether we like it or not, a term like Islamophobia is obviously going to come up, not because the Muslim community in Canada is talking about it, but because many Canadians of all different walks of life are discussing it. So whether we want it to be part of the discussion or part of the equation or not, it's going to be, and I think that's just understood. What about the Conservatives' position on this? Uh, Tory MP Tim Upple, I believe it was, uh, came out and, and, and apologized basically for not supporting uh, stances in the past. Michelle Rempel Gardner also yeah. expressed some concern. What are your thoughts there? Is there is something happening here? 
Well, not necessarily. I mean, I think a lot of people are obviously being reflective and they're looking back on past statements and they're apologizing. Now, some will say that they're, excuse me, being genuine and others would suggest that they're just sort of following the mob and saying whatever sounds plausible today and whatever sounds sensible and moving forward that way. I mean, I leave it up to people to make their own decisions on whether it's genuine or not. But I think that a lot of people, when they sit back and think about issues, you have what is called, you know, sober second thought. You reconsider some of the things that you've discussed in public. And some of them may have obviously been rightfully understood. They may have been completely acceptable. They may have been justified at that time. But when you've had some time to think about it, you wonder if the point you were trying to make or the statement you were trying to either agree or disagree with could have been said or could have been constructed in a different manner. You know, as someone who obviously writes words for a living and has written columns and speeches for the better part of more than a quarter century, I understand how important words are, whether they are, it's the written word or it's verbalized. And for that reason, I mean, unfortunately, you know, they say print is forever, as the old statement goes, and that's definitely true. But in this day and age, a lot of the statements that we make be it on, well, radio, TV, or social media, or whatnot, are going to last with us for a long period of time. So I can understand why Mr. Apollo and, and Ms. Rempel did what they did, and I wouldn't be surprised if others, as time went along, also had this sort of coming-to-terms moment with what they've said and whether they sort of regret what they, the comment that they made or a co- series of comments they made sometimes, you know, days, weeks, months, years ago. Um, But I think we have to take them at face value and look on a case-by-case basis rather than sort of making a blanket statement that they're all being honest or they're all being dishonest. That's the way I look at it anyway. All right, let's talk about uh, the notwithstanding clause being used uh, over the weekend in order to uh, curb uh, election spending. Uh, Give us a brief rundown on what happened and what this all involves. Well, I mean, again, this all heads back to the notwithstanding clause, and um, <laughs> which is something that I, I think most people, no matter where you are in the political spectrum, would prefer was not used too, too frequently. In fact, the notwithstanding clause has been, in, I think it's been brought up less than what, less than 12 times in Canadian history, I think 10, with, with this now, with this decision by Premier Doug Ford to use it. Um, Again, it depends how you look at it and how you look at the issue. Putting the notwithstanding clause behind, you know, and I'm not, as I said, I'm not terribly in favor of using it, even if I understand it in this instance. I just think it's best to avoid it, and I get why people are mad about it. It comes down to a play of what organizations, in particular, in this case, public sector unions, can or cannot say during an election period. And, you know, at one point, you know, we used to have, say, more of a balance of freedom of speech where a lot of things were allowed up to a certain point, pretty late in the campaign, whereas this now restricts many of these unions, plus individuals and organizations, either in the public or private sector, from saying their mind or speaking their mind on particular matters of importance to them, whether it's uh, an election issue, something about a political leader, something about a local MPP, whatever the case may be. Again, if you believe in free speech and you believe in intellectual discourse and discussion of debate on a wide variety of issues, 
while you can maybe understand why Mr. Ford implemented the notwithstanding clause to try to restrict any one group, in this case primarily unions, from taking control of a debate and shifting everything to one direction, I think unfortunately in today's society we often see that happening so much that even with something like a notwithstanding clause in place, you know that they're going to try to skirt around the issue or find ways around the perimeter to discuss certain matters, no matter what. And that's unfortunate that that's going to also be part of the puzzle when the next provincial election is held at some point next year, because you know that this matter that we're seeing right now will be discussed more fiercely as time goes along. So if you believe in free speech, I I don't think it's the best move that Mr. Ford has ever made just to show you that I can be fair and that I don't sit and praise the Ontario PCs for everything they do. I've never praised any political party, quite frankly, for everything they do, but certainly in this case, I think it could have been handled better. But I certainly understand why it was done. I just don't sympathize with it. So what other options would they have had here? Well, the only other option you really have, Scott, is to have freedom of speech, to enhance freedom of speech and to have these discussions. Meaning that if there is a well-funded individual or group that exists in Ontario in the next election and he, she, they want to discuss this issue nonstop by ads everywhere, by ads on TV, radio, newspapers, etc., and just keep plowing away in an open forum with open discussion, open debate, they can do so. At the same time, there's nothing saying that the other side couldn't do the same thing. Maybe they wouldn't be necessarily as well-funded, but that means then they would have to be more intelligent and strategic in terms of getting their messaging out. And a lot of people now, especially, you know, if you use young people or millennials who are very computer and tech savvy and have lots of interesting ideas how to get people to notice what they say or do, I think you could have a competitive environment where both sides of the issue are being discussed and people will just make their decision or base their opinion on whatever they like best or whatever they agree or disagree with. So that was really that's really the best way to do it, because it's very black and white. You either have it or you don't have it. And I just believe that in a free society, we should have more discussions, more debate, more dissension, more controversy, and more coming to terms or finding or building bridges and finding ways to have greater political discourse. The problem is, in this era, with fake news and everything else being bandied about, it's much harder to do so. But it's still the health, intellectual discourse and free speech are still the healthiest ways to do it. And, you know, I don't think anybody's going to argue about free speech, especially uh, when you're talking about an election campaign. But the options are you can contribute to a political party. Uh, And again, I'm all for free speech and getting your points out. But doesn't this then become whoever has the most money gets the, you know, has the loudest megaphone? And that's how, uh, you know, the the election is influenced. I mean, we've seen that in the United States over and over again, where. Um, you know, it's not just the groups, it's groups of the groups of the groups that are that are buying ads. So mm-hmm. at what point, does, uh, where's the balance? Well, as I said to you, if that's the case, I said in the previous point, if that's the case, then you have to be more intelligent and creative and strategic in terms of how you get your message out yeah. if you don't have as big a pool of money. So I get that. Um, well, to the victor goes the spoils. And unfortunately, in the system, it's fine to have campaign finance reform and other issues that are discussed to try to level the playing field. But you've correctly alluded to it, Scott, in a different way. If you have groups on top of groups on top of groups, 
then your influence, whether it be financial influence, political influence, or just personal influence, can obviously break away through many different branches and go in many different directions to try to get your point across, your statement across, your position across, or whatever the issue is. So there's no perfect formula, even in a democracy, to have something like that. But there are ways to get your message out, even if you don't have a big, fat pile of money sitting behind you. And we have seen that at times. You know, the, the MoveOn.org uh, movement in the United States that propelled people, you know, candidates like Howard Dean and others, originally just started with little bare sums of money for contributions. Bernie Sanders was the same way in the United States, too. So you start off with these little bare sums of money and people just contributing $5, $10 per chance. But if you get millions of people or hundreds of thousands of people supporting you, your pot of money becomes much larger and your influence continues to increase, especially if the media covers you. So I would say that it's more difficult if you have less financial backers or a lot of money not behind you, but it's not impossible to get your message out. So I think it can be done. So bad optics here for uh, Ford. Uh, will this come back to bite him in the next election? I don't necessarily think this will come to bite him. I mean, whoever is angry with him, Scott, already is still angry with him. This yeah. isn't going to change anything. And even if people who voted for him last time, and you've probably seen this as well as I have, and I'm sure a lot of the listeners have too, you listen to people who said that, well, we voted for Doug Ford in 2018, or we also voted for his late brother, Rob Ford, for mayor, you know, and, and maybe Doug is city councilor, but we're not doing this again. Um, it's easier said than done right now. You know, a day in politics is a lifetime, as the old saying goes, and we are still roughly about a year away from the next provincial election. And people have short memories. They really do. It doesn't mean that major issues or profound issues won't continue to resonate with the general populace. And if there's a huge controversy, people will obviously talk about it. I just don't think the use of the notwithstanding clause is going to necessarily capture the voter's imagination as time goes along. I think you'll have people who agree and disagree with it, people who feel that Doug Ford didn't go far enough or went too far. But again, it's much like the whole rigmarole we may remember in our pre-COVID days when we were talking about the size of Toronto City Hall being decreased to 24 seats. That was a major issue that was being discussed at that yeah. time. Yeah. But what else is new? It's changed because of COVID and other things. We, you know, the, the political barometer moves in different directions. So, no, I really don't think this is going to cost them, except with the people who didn't like them already. All right, can't let you go before we squeeze this one in. Major General Danny Fortin filing a court challenge over his firing, his removal from the vaccine uh, rollout campaign. What are your thoughts on this? I, I mean, it just never ends, unfortunately. And I don't, he can try. I mean, obviously, it's a free society. When you're removed from a position, you know, we naturally know that people will obviously, get, you know, gather together a legal team, especially if you're high profile and try to sort of find a way to either get reestablished or back into the position or to come to some point where they reach a you know, mutual point of severance or something else that just sort of tidies up the matter in a nice, neat little bow when they move on. But again, you know, it's interesting. I think it would just come to a point in our society, and I have actually discussed this with other people in the past, and maybe you have too, where no one ever admits they're wrong. No one apologizes. Mm. No one says anything. Even if it's the misstep is slight, 
they'll keep saying it was something else or point in a different direction. The leader of our country does this continually, so maybe we shouldn't be surprised that everybody else does it too. But does Mr. Fortin have a, have a point? We'll see if he's able to get a legal team assembled and, and fight back on it and somehow get either brought back into that position or come away with an enormous amount of money. It'll show that something may have happened that was unusual. But based on what we know of this instance and based on what we know of his removal from this position and the allegations swirling around him, I don't know. I don't think he really has a leg to stand on. But as we've seen with some court cases in the past in our history, anything is possible. Michael Tobe with us, Troy Media Syndicated columnist, contributor to The Washington Times, former speechwriter for Stephen Harper. Michael, as always, thanks so much for your time. Be well. My pleasure. You too. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on 900 CHML.